pray together. Gracious Father, we have been telling you throughout our service how profoundly grateful we are for your dealing with us in grace. Grace that gives us hope. Grace that deals with our past, our failings, our regrets. Grace that helps us to have hope as we live in a world that's still under the curse of sin. Assurance that you are not finished the work that you've begun. Lord, thank you for the hope we have of restoration and of knowing someday there will be no suffering, there will be no pain, there will be no more death. Until that time, Father, we pray that we might know the life of Christ in us and that we might be living your life, Lord, through us in a way that would cause people to understand that we really are your people by how we treat each other. Toward that end, we pray that you might open our hearts, open our minds to grapple with simple yet profound and challenging concepts. We ask the Holy Spirit's help in this regard. In Christ's name, amen. One of the tests of an effective communicator is the ability to simplify complex concepts and to reduce one's comments down into a simple-to-understand, succinct message. I'm still working on that. I'm still working on that. But here in the passage we've been looking at in Matthew 22, I invite you to find your way there in your Bible, Matthew 22, verses 34 to 39, Jesus took 300 and 81 pages in the New American Standard Bible. I don't know what kind of pages you have in your Bible translation. 381 pages of biblical instruction in the Pentateuch, and he reduced it down to two sentences. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the other statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The 5,853 verses in the first five books of the Bible are summarized in 21 words in the Greek New Testament. Now last week we continued our examination of this portion of Scripture in Matthew chapter 22. We considered the obligation we have to love our neighbor as ourselves. If you were not here for that or if you somehow have forgotten what we said, and that happens sometimes, Again, I would remind you those things are available on the web page. You can click on sermons and listen to it. Listen to the first sermon in the series uh, or borrow and take a CD. But this morning, I want to invite you to consider with me the answers to two questions that still, in my mind, need to be answered if we're going to really fully understand the second sentence, the second command that Jesus gave. The first question is this. Why is loving our neighbor so important? that it would be listed along with the important, and we understand the importance of loving God, but why would this second sentence be the summary of the Pentateuch to love our neighbor as ourselves? Why is it so important? Second question I'd like to answer is, what are a number of practical implications and practical applications of the command to love our neighbors as ourselves? This is going to be a practical, um, hopefully down-to-earth kind of message to help us bring it down from the theoretical down to where we live. 
Point number one, loving our neighbor is an outward indicator of our hearts. This is an answer to the question as to why it's so important. Love for our neighbor is the overflow of our love for God. And the Apostle John, in chapter 4 of his first epistle, gave the following explanation of how the two concepts are linked together, a love for God and love for our neighbor. 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. We have come to know God and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the love which and sorry, and the one who abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Did you see how those were linked together? Loving God, loving our brother, loving our neighbor. The test of our love for God is the degree to which we love our neighbor. If we know God the Father through Jesus Christ as a result of the regenerating power and work of the Holy Spirit, the outward fruit, that is the the fruit we will see outwardly in our lives, is the vertical love for God and the horizontal love for the people around us. I would add to that the fact that Jesus insisted that our loving our fellow believers is the outward indicator that we are his true disciples. You can't claim to be a follower and and disciple of Jesus Christ if you're not loving your neighbor as yourself. You say, well, show me that in the Bible. Well, John chapter 13, maybe you want to look that one up. John 13, 34. This is in the context of Jesus having just demonstrated for his followers in the most powerful and humbling way what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. He had just washed their feet. He had just assumed the lowest rank of anybody in that culture by washing the feet, a job only done by those who were considered to be slaves or servants. And Jesus says in John thirteen thirty four. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. That you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples. How are they going to know if you're my disciples? How would we people know that you are a disciple of Jesus Christ or that I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ? You have a certain bumper sticker on the back of your car. You have a little fish insignia on the back of your car. That's how people are going to know? Nothing wrong with that. But notice what Jesus says. He says, you'll know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. While true Christians may exhibit any number of characteristics, Jesus insisted that love for the brethren is an essential. If we affirm orthodox theology and we were to go beyond that and we were to somehow exhibit radical commitment to Jesus Christ, but we lack love for our brother or sister, our discipleship bears no proof of authenticity. Loving our neighbor is not a secondary matter. 
It is supremely important, and when writing his first epistle to believers who are being treated unjustly, they're being threatened, they're being persecuted, they're being ready to be taken to the, to the lions or burned at the stake for their devotion to Jesus Christ. The Apostle Peter mentioned in his first chapter of his first epistles, he mentioned these words and urged the followers in this way. He said, quote, verse 22, Fervently love one another from the heart for you have been born again through the living and abiding word of god that's a strong admonition but notice secondly he repeats the same thing in chapter 2 verse 17 love the brotherhood and in chapter 4 he reiterated once again above all peter wrote love sorry above all keep fervent in your love for one another we find the same emphasis in the priority of importance of love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13, where Paul wrote, Now abide faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is what? Love. The greatest. Loving your neighbor is an accurate barometer of your love and commitment to Jesus Christ. And one goal of every believer, one goal that every believer in Christ ought to be pursuing is the goal of an ever-increasing love for God that is exemplified or demonstrated by an ever-increasing love for the people around us. Listen to Paul's instruction to the believers in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. I hope I'm not hammering this too hard. I'm just trying to help us understand this is a non-negotiable. This is an extremely important area of our lives. And the, the New Testament is just full of admonitions about love. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 and 10. Paul wrote, now as to the love of the brethren, you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren. But we urge you, Paul wrote, even though you've been loving each other, we urge you to excel still more. That is, it's not enough to do what you've been doing currently. You need to continually advance and grow in your love for each other as time goes on. So my question is, we come to this first point this morning about bearing witness of what our heart, a condition of our heart is. Are you excelling in this area of loving the people around you, your neighbor, loving your fellow brother or sister in Christ? Do other people around you sense that you really love them? Can the people who know you see the evidence in your life that your love is excelling more and more? And that your love for God is very clear to other people and how you deal with them and treat them. And you say, well, I hope so. Well, let me just remind you again of a definition of love that we suggested from last week to try to bring it down to say, what do you mean by loving other people? I'll use Paul Tripp's brief definition of love. He said, love is willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocation. That is, you're not going to give me something for my choosing to self-sacrifice myself for your benefit. So the question comes again is, is that evident in our lives? Well, let's talk about what practically that might look like. So our second point this morning is, again, starting a number of considerations. I've gleaned some of these uh, as initial thoughts from Jerry Bridges' book on a fruitful life. But follow along now as we look at loving our neighbor is a practical matter. Practical. Let's get down to the nitty-gritty and talk about 
what love looks like. First of all, we know that love gives. Love gives. Whatever the cost, no matter the cost. So much of what is claimed to be love in our culture today has as its goal one primary thing. Obtaining what that person wants from another person. I might do a couple of kind things for you. I only am doing it because I want you to do something that I really want from you. I want you to do something back for me. I want you to be pleasant to me. I want you to make, make me feel important. I want you to make my world go well. And I'll continue to do some things toward you that we can call love. But as soon as you don't do those things, I'm done with you. That's what a lot of what, what people think love is in our world today. But notice agape love, biblical love, involves giving. 1 John 3.16, very important to understand this principle. 1 John 3.16 says this, We know love by this, that He laid down His life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Biblical love begins by taking a genuine interest in, on, in another person. In that person's welfare, that person's concerns, that person's world, we become focused on other people. And the concept of love means I'm going to give for you and your benefit. Love goes beyond the interest alone. Love lays down one's life. One gets involved in the meeting of practical needs of our neighbor. For example, the next verse, 1 John 3.17 says, Whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? And the answer would be, it doesn't. If your heart is cold and your heart is closed to other people and their needs, then you've got to ask yourself, what kind of love do you have for God? Laying down our lives is the opposite of self-fulfillment. It is the opposite of living a life of convenience and comfort. Laying down our lives means that we're willing to give up, for example, our precious time. Time is a huge uh, commodity in our world. It's very valuable. People are busy. People are doing lots of things. And so if you say, look, I'll give you some of my time, and you help somebody with their problem, my friend, that is one practical way to show love to somebody. Laying down our lives means you're going to devote your attention, your full individual attention to the person who is speaking to you at that moment. And you're going to actually listen to what they're saying instead of, I'm going to think of the six things I'm going to tell you when you stop talking because I want you to listen to what I got to say. No, love says, I'm going to give you my full attention. I'm going to listen with ears that say, I want to understand you and what you're expressing to me and what your body language is saying to me and how kind of emotions you're feeling and what kind of things you want me to understand. So often people don't listen out of love. They listen out of, yeah, yeah, yeah. I want you to hear this. Listening is challenging, my friend, if you do it out of love. It's selfless because it requires you listening to their real underlying message that's beyond even their words at times. Laying down our lives will also involve sacrificing our resources, giving up some of the things you might have. 
to help provide for another person who is in need. Laying down your lives will prompt you to help maybe those around you who many times are helpless or in need of help and assistance. For example, those of you who take care of small children. They need help with their clothes. They need help with their personal hygiene. They need help with their food preparation every single day. Here we go. Once again, I've got to help with this. And what a mess. And what a mess. And what a mess. And then you say to yourself, yeah, and these same children that I'm helping, they happen to be impatient oftentimes. And yes, did I mention they're messy? And yes, they are demanding. And oftentimes, I keep reminding myself, can they spill their juice for the 33rd time? Well, now they have these nice sipper cups. But back in the day, they used to knock everything over. But love does what? Love gives. I'll give your time. I'll give my efforts to help you because you're still young. You have needs. Someone has said, you can give without loving, but you can never love without giving. God loved you and gave His one and only Son. Is your heart open and willing to give of yourself to those around you? Have, who, to whom have you given your time, your attention, your material goods, your efforts to help and serve somebody? My friend, that's where love shines. It's when you give. Love not only gives, love reaches out. Love does not sit back and wait for the other person to ask for help. Or does not sit back and wait for that person to assist you first. <laughs> That's the way the world works, you know. You scratch my back, then I'll scratch yours. I'm waiting. You're going to scratch? You're going to scratch? Love takes the initiative. Now you say, what are you talking about? Give me a verse. Well, the scriptures are filled with verses in the New Testament regarding practical one another admonitions, which we call the reciprocal commands. It's also known as the one another commands. There are about 20 or 25 of them in the New Testament. Everything from pray for one another, receive one another, bear one another's burdens, encourage one another. It just goes on and on. There are all sorts of practical ways that we're called to express love to each other. Now, if we wait for the other person to make the first move, then guess what? Most of the one anothering would never take place. Love is not passive. Love reaches out. Now, think about how this works out, practically speaking. Suppose you come into a situation like this where you're entering a place where there's other people and you say to yourself, well, scriptures call me to greet one another. But, you know, I'm just going to wait and see if anybody says hi to me first. They see me coming up here. I'm going to see if they'll say hello. And so you walk up and you don't say anything and you look past other people and you ignore people around you and you're just busy yourself trying to find your way and do what you want to do and ignoring the people around you just so you can just sit down and, and find yourself comfortable. What happens if everybody else does the same? What happens if we just wait for people to do what they should be doing before we do what God calls us to do. 
That's not love, my friends. That's just merely responding to people out of either a sense of obligation or out of a sense of, I guess I have to now, or, oh yeah, I guess I'm just sort of reacting to you. But love calls us to reach out and to initiate expressions of our kindness and thoughtfulness and concern for others. Everyone, of course, would walk past everyone else if no one ever extended the right hand of fellowship or braced people as they encountered them. Love does not wait, my friend. Love reaches out. You say, but I don't feel like it sometimes. I feel like I'm a phony if I reach out and do that. I'm waiting till I have a better feeling about this person or this situation until I feel like I'm in a better place. I don't know what you're waiting for, my friends. I don't know what you're waiting for because look at the implications here about love. Love does not wait on feelings. Watch this. You say, give me an example. Luke chapter 6, verse 27, 28. Love will reach out even when you don't feel like it. Biblical agape love involves the self-giving attitude that leads to unselfish outward actions. And it's a command. I'm told I am to love, it's a command. Therefore, it is not anchored necessarily to my feelings. It's anchored to my will. I will choose to love this person. Okay, what, let's go back to Luke 6. Jesus says, love your enemies. Uh-oh. I may not have very good emotions about my enemies. He says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. My friend, I would challenge you, if you waited till you had good emotions before you did those, you wouldn't get there. You'd never get there. You'll never feel good, probably in your gut, about an enemy who mistreats you. I'm sorry. There are real emotions that say, that hurts. But love refuses to sit back and wait for the other person to initiate. Love moves towards one's neighbors and seeks what is in the best interest of the other person, regardless of how you feel about them. And biblical love is not anchored, as I said, entirely to your emotions. I'm not saying it's bad to have emotions. Yes, we'll have emotions. Uh, We shouldn't deny that we have emotions. But the key issue here is we don't allow our emotions to control what we do or don't do. I would suggest to you, many of you, don't go to work because you have nice emotional feelings when the alarm goes off in the morning. You do what you have to do regardless of your feelings. And the same is true under the concept of love. Often emotions will get, will reach and, and catch up to us if we continually make good choices and, and seek God's help in trying to do what he calls us to do. And hopefully our, our emotions will come in line with what we're doing and eventually come to the point where we're at peace in that. But the point here is what? Don't wait. Initiate. That was so good, I'm going to say it again. Don't wait. Initiate. That's a good reminder when you want to measure and look what, ask yourself what love looks like. Number three, or point C. Love overlooks shortcomings and weaknesses in others. Now, I don't know about you, but all of us, I'll put myself in this category. Maybe you don't want to say you're a member of this club yet, but all of us make mistakes. All of us have our share of blunders and failings. And I would imagine all of us can easily 
name a number of annoying habits that people you know have. Things you know around you, their mannerisms are things that just sort of drive you up the wall. I know one of mine is people who text during sermons. Or people who talk with their mouth full. People who don't use their their, uh, turning signals when they drive. Things like that. But the important concept here is love does not give up on imperfect people. Ephesians 4 is a very helpful principle on this one. I encourage you to think hard about this and meditate on it. Ephesians 4, 1 and 2 says, practical dimension of love is, Paul says, I entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love. Biblical love calls us to be patient with other people who have faults, who are fallible, who oftentimes drop the ball. And rather than being quick to criticize and condemn, love calls us to be graciously, calls us to graciously endure and put up with others who make foolish choices every so often and who fail to follow through, who occasionally goof up. Now, this does not mean that we are to never confront people. I'm not suggesting that. Yes, we need to confront people. We need to speak to them about matters of sin. It is an important biblical injunction. But it means, what I'm suggesting here is that love suffers long. That some minor offenses can be and should be overlooked and covered over. It's not a big deal. Move on. Here's a very helpful proverb. Proverb 19.11. Proverbs 19.11 says, A man's wisdom gives him patience. It is to his glory to what? To overlook an offense. There are offenses, my friend, that are overlookable. You can just dismiss them. Just say, disregard that. Move on. It's not a big deal. And all of us learn, must learn to develop an understanding that that's an appropriate expression of love to other people. If an offense is not part of a destructive pattern, it's not causing harm to others, it doesn't fall into the category of a minor offense, sorry, a major offense, then we are, love is supposed to be slow to anger. Slow to anger. Love is willing to overlook shortcomings, weaknesses, and minor offenses. And I would like to just ask the question, how many offenses has God overlooked in your life? How many things has God said, okay, let's just, we're not going to make a big deal out of this one. Um, Are you loving others? as God has loved you by overlooking the faults of others and showing patience toward them. So practical, so helpful. Especially in marriage, where you see so much of the other person in their weaknesses. You have to learn to be forbearing and learn by God's grace to love. All right, letter D. Love puts the interests of others before our own. The interest of others before our own. You can't help but think of Philippians chapter 2 when we talk about this principle that's illustrated so powerfully in Jesus Christ. Here's Jesus enjoying what is rightfully his, the glory and the majesty of heaven. He lays aside his divine prerogatives there in heaven. He assumes the role and position of a slave. 
a slave, which is the lowest of lowest roles you can assume. It is on the level almost of a beast of burden who had no rights and no respect. And Jesus did this not because he's trying to advance himself. He's not because he's trying to somehow prove something. He was doing that because he regarded others as more important than himself. He did not merely look out for his own personal interests. He was deeply concerned for the interest of sinners like you and me. Philippians 2, 3 and 4. And here's Christ out of his compassion for helpless, rebellious sinners like you and me. He humbles himself, becomes obedient to the death on the cross. He offered himself as a sacrifice to God to satisfy the demands of justice that were against us. Not against him, against us. He becomes concerned for our trouble and tragedy. And Jesus underwent the horrors of Calvary, not because he was forced to, but because he was concerned that the plight of sinners like you and me might be remedied. Being concerned about the needs and problems of other people may and often does, my friend, involve us becoming involved in bearing the burdens of other people. We become people who are going, if I'm going to become involved in the interest of other things, it may affect me in bringing emotional pain into my life as I hear of somebody else's sufferings, as I realize somebody else having to face something that's ongoing and chronic and, and, re, and very difficult. I become a person who feels great grief. I might become mis- distressed myself. I might be brought to anguish. I might begin to cry and express tears because their interest has become my concern. It's painful when you get involved in other people's interests and concerns and are more concerned about them than you are about yourself. And whenever we love deeply from the heart, like we are members of the same family, having the same love for each other as members of the same family, we'll end up at times taking on burdens that are not our own. And according to Galatians 6, that's exactly what it means to fulfill the law of Christ, to bear one another's burdens. It doesn't mean I'm going to take that burden away from you. It means I'm going to come alongside of you and help you with that burden. One final thought I want to offer to you under another final practical expression of love, and that is love sacrifices to forgive. Love sacrifices to forgive. Ephesians 4 is so clear on this. We could So much we could say on this, but Ephesians 4 says, Let all bitterness, verse 31, let all bitterness, not just some, all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor, That means explosive anger and slow burn contained anger. Let all of that type of anger be put away from you along with all malice and be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. If God in love provided Jesus Christ to die in our place as our substitute for our transgressions, so that we might be forgiven, how can we not forgive those who sin against us? Love extends the following promise to the offender. Here's what love will do. If love is committed to forgiving, here is what love will do. Love will make a promise. That's what forgiving is. It's promise-making. From this point on, love says, I will not hold this sin against you. I promise to release you from the debt that you owe me. 
I will not use this offense against you in the future. And I will not let this sin issue stand between us and hinder our relationship. If you say that, if those are the words that you express, if that is the way in which you treat the person who has offended you, my friend, you are acting in love. And that's how forgiveness works. It makes a promise and then follows that promise by the grace and enabling of the Holy Spirit. Not too long ago, we showed a series in our Sunday School Hour called Resolving Everyday Conflict. And they used the illustration of Corey Ten Boom. It's one of the great illustrations of forgiveness uh, that we have to work with just because of the heinousness of the sin committed against her. Corey Ten Boom and her sister and members of her family survived. Well, she's the one who survived the horrors of the uh, Ravensbrück concentration camp during the Holocaust. And years after she was released, she was ministering in various churches there in Germany. And after one of her talks about the amazing forgiveness of God, she was greeted at the door by one of the guards who stood and watched and stared at all these naked women who filed by in the shower room. And all the horror of what she experienced once again flashed into her mind again. And as he extended his hand to her and affirmed with her the wonders of God's forgiveness, of which she had just spoken moments earlier in the service, she struggled to hold in check her thoughts of revenge and disgust and bitterness toward this vile guard. And she said she silently prayed before she reached that hand up because she had no strength to raise that hand. She quickly prayed, Lord, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And she discovered as she did so that God, along with the command he gives us to forgive, gives us the grace to make that promise to forgive others because we have received such a huge, immense, powerful, amazing, grace-filled forgiveness ourselves for a debt that's far greater than anything you'll ever suffer from anybody else. I wonder if there are some among us today who would say, when it comes to the area of love, are you carrying a grudge? Can you make that promise, the promise of love that says I'll forgive, saying I will not let this become an issue between us? Are you contemplating revenge? Is your heart embittered against someone? Is there someone you're avoiding? My friend, may love so work in your heart out of a love for God that your heart will what? Be so compelled to reach out, to initiate, not to wait, to initiate the process that will say, Listen, let's not let this become an issue between us any longer. Let's put it aside and let's extend forgiveness and grace and healing and hope. And let's love as he's loved us. Let us love others. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we can't help but today... Thank you again and again and again and again for the greatness of your love for us. 
Lord, you do not call us to love out of a sheer willing and determination in our hearts to pull up our boots and say, I'm just going to do what I have to do. But Lord, we thank you that your love has softened our hearts. We thank you that your heart, your love has taken our stony, hardened hearts, our bitter hearts, our self-focused hearts, our hearts that are so bent on our own rights and our own comforts. We thank you, Lord, that your love has softened them and melted away so much of our selfishness in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that you might give us a love that just spills over. It flows out of us, not because we're trying hard to love, but because, Lord, we are meditating upon and filling our, our hearts and minds and, and our souls with a sense of wonder and amazement at the love you've already shown to us and that you are showing us and that you will show us throughout eternity in Christ. Lord, I pray that there might be the fruit of love in our hearts. For those of us who claim to be followers and disciples of Jesus Christ, may they be greater and greater evidence of that in how we deal with each other and those around us that you've placed into our lives, Lord. And I pray, Father, that if there are some here today who sense that I don't have that love, my heart is not anywhere close to being some of the things you've talked about as you try to talk about the practical aspects of love. Lord, I pray that today they might be brought into awareness that they need your love first. They need to respond to your love. They need to know the extent and the demonstration of love you've shown them to, through Christ and his offering of himself for each of us for our sins, that we might live a new life, that we might have a heart of love, So, Lord, I pray that you would work a mighty work of regeneration in their hearts, that you might draw people to Christ today, that you might then enable them to be God lovers and people lovers for your glory. Work in us, we pray, by your Spirit. Help us, Lord. We can't do this. We cannot do it. We cry out, teach us to love as you have loved. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.